Good morning. Welcome home, family. It's so glad to see everyone here with us this morning. I know we have a lot of people out sick and the crud's going around, so it's great that we can gather together. We are starting a Advent series this morning where we're going to just be thinking about, meditating on, celebrating in the fact that God sent his son for us, which is what we remember during Christmas. Christian hope, the fact that we have hope in so many things which Christ brings to us, and that's what we'll be focusing on. But before we dive into that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this day, a day in which we can come together as your people and praise you. Lord, I pray for this time as we open up your word that you can speak through it, that we can see who you are, we can see your love, we can especially see your love sending Jesus for us. Lord, we lift up this congregation, and, and we, I, I pray for each and every one who calls River Valley home. I pray for us to grow in devotion towards you and your son. I pray for your spirit to be working powerfully in our lives, sanctifying us bit by bit as we seek to serve and love you. Lord, I just pray for this community in which we live, that we can be a light upon a hill, so that people can know they can hear who Jesus is when they come in. That we also go out and we spread the good news in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and to our friends. Lord, I just pray that we can be your people as you've called us to be your people. I pray for the season as we're entering into it, that it cannot that why we can have great celebrations and great traditions that we focus on and demonstrated by the sending of your Son, and why that is so fundamental to our faith and our salvation. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's the Christmas season. It's our, it's, I mean, it's December 3rd, we're here, it's the Christmas season, and many different feelings can well up in many different people about this season. Some people are ecstatic. They can't wait. They've already been playing Christmas music since September, and they're looking forward to it, and they are just ready to do it. They love the, the traditions. Some people are excited because they get together with family that they normally don't get together with, and they're looking forward to that. Other people just love music and decorating, and they, you know, they have pulled out all the boxes from the attic and, and probably have some frustration with lights that all of a sudden don't work for no reason. And so people are feeling so many different things. Other people could actually not see it as joyful at the time as they're grieving the loss of a loved one and how it hits all different during this season. Some people might not even want to celebrate or celebrate Christmas because they've seen how the world has taken it and taken it so far from its roots that they say it's not worth it. Other people might feel even something different. There's so many different feelings and thoughts that can be, be experienced during this Christmas season. Whatever you're feeling, one of the main things you should be feeling is a feeling of hope. For that is at the root of what this season is, is a feeling of hope, a, a, a hope of who God is and a hope in his redemption plan. Now I'm speaking of a Christian hope, not just a, a worldly hope. A worldly hope is just kind of wishful thinking, is a vague wishfulness that something could happen. But a Christian hope is that confident assurance 
a confident expectation that God is who he said he is, and he does what he said he's going to do. And so when Christians approach this, Christian, this Christmas season, they should have a feeling of hope because during this time we remember who God is and how he moves heaven and earth for our salvation. Hope is actually central to the Christian life. When you start reading the New Testament, it's amazing all the things we're called to hope in. We're called to hope in the, in the recognition that uh, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. We're called to hope in the divine salvation in Christ. We're called to hope in uh, uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit that brings in hope. We're called to hope in the future, future resurrection of the dead, hope in the promises given to Israel given that are, are fulfilled in Christ, to hope in eternal glory, eternal life, and the inheritance of the saints. We're called to hope in the return of Christ, the transformation into likeness of Christ, the salvation of God, or simply Christ himself. Again and again, the New Testament is clear. We are called to hope. And when it comes to Christ, and when it comes to this Christmas season, we're called to remember and hope in God sending his son for us. The Christmas season is a season of hope as we look towards Jesus and who he is, what he accomplishes, and what awaits us because of that, is that we hope. And so to focus on this hope that we have, Let's open up the Word of God and see why we have this hope. Now we're going to go to a not typical um, Christmas text. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have your Bibles, don't worry, it's going to be on the screen behind us. But if you like a paper Bible, uh, in, under the seats in front of you, there are some Bibles scattered there, and it will be on page 8. 187 at the bottom of that page will be where we are. And so let's read Romans 8. Chapter, I mean, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is not a normal Christmas uh, passage, but I think it is a Christmas passage because it talks about how we receive salvation. Because he sends his son in the likeness of, of the flesh. He sends his son for us and what that accomplishes. And so what should we pull from not this passage, but this idea that we have hope during this Christmas season is that Jesus provides our pardon. That we actually have a hope in Christ because he pardons us before our holy God. Jesus provides our pardon. And when we think about Jesus providing, Jesus coming to us, what we're talking about is the incarnation which is just a fancy way of in the flesh. 
This is what we're celebrating during Christmas. Is the incarnational son who was not made, who was not, who had no beginning because he was God himself. The son chose to go when the father says, who will I send? The son goes. He is incarnated in the flesh. He's born as a helpless babe. As we just read in Matthew 1, the, the beginning of Jesus' life. He was born to fulfill prophecy. He was born as one of us. He took on human flesh. He took on a human nature. This is maybe one of the greatest miracles the world has ever witnessed. It's funny, this is a side. When you're a theology, a theology nerd, you kind of, kind of wonder those questions, what's the greatest miracle? And you kind of go, well, is it a resurrection or is it the incarnation? I think it's, just, it's, it's everything, but... This is a, a, a miracle that defies expectation, defies logic, that the Word becomes flesh, that the Son chose to take upon human nature and be born a baby, to grow and learn just as one of us, to go through puberty just like one of us, to experience Life as we experience, including the temptation to sin, and yet was without truly human. Jesus is truly human. We must never doubt that he truly was a man. He did not just come with the appearance of that, but he truly was human. And because of that, he can sympathize with us, he can relate to us, and he can represent us before the Almighty God. We see this again and again through Scripture. We can read it in uh, Philippians 2 where Paul is most likely quoting from an uh, a, uh, early church hymn when he's talking about Jesus and talking to him about how who, even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men. That God, the Son, even though he was God, did not grasp onto it, but actually lowered himself for our sake. Or we read in the, in the book of Hebrews, and we see it again and again in Hebrews chapter 4, about how we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted as we were, but without sin. Or in Hebrews chapter 2, where it talks about how, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. This is all about the incarnation, about how Jesus chose to partake in human nature to flesh and fundamentally so that he can represent us before our holy God. I was reading this week in, uh, in a book called Holiness with J.C. Ryle, who uh, is an Englishman, an old theologian there, and he, he wrote this about the incarnation, about Jesus coming in the flesh. He says, it is a marvelous love and our Savior to, be, to condescend to go through weakness and humiliation for our sakes, ungodly rebels as we are. He is no stranger to our sensations. He is acquainted with everything that belongs to hum, human nature, sin only accepted. Are you poor and needy? So also was Jesus. Are you alone in the world and neglected by those who ought to love you? 
So also was Jesus. Are you misunderstood, misrepresented, slandered, and persecuted? So also was Jesus. Did Satan tempt you and offer horrid suggestions to your mind? So also did he tempt Jesus. It is impossible to conceive a Savior more suited to the wants of man's heart than our Lord Jesus Christ, suited not only by his power, but by his sympathy, suited not only by his divinity, but by his humanity. This is what we remember in Christmas, the incarnation that Jesus came down in the flesh. He was just of, of humanity. When we read this, actually, we see that. He says, we see this in, in the verse in, um, in Philippians as well as in the verse in Romans, how it says, for God, uh, um, by sending his own flood into likeness of sinful flesh. And we read that and say likeness. Well, that just means he's kind of like a human, Right? But we forget that we're, we're reading it with our eyes from our times. And likeness, this kind of means like the appearance. But when we read in the Bible, likeness, that has a deeper meaning. Because remember, way back in the beginning, in Genesis, God says, let us create man in our image. In our likeness, we will create them. And so God created humanity in his likeness, meaning we bear the image of God. And so when the Son comes in the likeness of humanity, he is actually representing and bearing the image. He comes in human flesh. We must not err on, this, on the side of thinking, oh, is this, is this God kind of like a human? God kind of appearing like him? This is an, an heresy called docetism, this idea that he's not truly human, he's all divine because we can't really struggle to accept it. But the fact that he comes and he's human actually fundamentally separates him from all other faiths. Other faiths and ideas and myths about gods have the idea that somehow God, these gods, would come down in some of we see in Christianity, the Son took upon human nature to be one of us, to save us. This is what we remember in the incarnation. But why did he do this? Why did God do this? So that Christ would be the mediator we need. That we need a new Adam who does not fail. We need someone to represent us before God, mediate us before God, and Jesus comes as one of us to do just that. When I was uh, early in my Christian faith, there's a classic demonstration of the plight of humanity, and we talk about humanity being on this side, and we're, and, and, and we're over here, and then there's this gulf, and God is over here. And this gulf, is, it, you, can't, you can't span it. You can't reach across it. It's the gulf caused by sin. We're separated from God. Humanity is here. God is here. And that is our natural existence. Well, God sends his son. Why? So that he could come here as one of us, live the life perfectly that we cannot live, give us his righteousness. And what he does is span that gap because only God can reach across. And so Jesus, as one of us, spans this gap so that he can take us back to God works in this way that now Jesus can represent us fully and perfectly as the righteous one who brings us before God, as the righteous one who can now usher his people before the throne room of grace, and he can say, these are mine, they're in. And he was incarnated, he was born for this express purpose. This is what we celebrate. The son who was promised is now given 
who comes to provide pardon and salvation for us. And how does he do that? How does Jesus provide our pardon? He fulfills the law and he condemns sin. There's two obstacles before all humans in their relationship before God. They're related, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, is that we cannot fulfill the law of God. We cannot be perfect because he sets the standard as being perfect. We cannot do what is required to step before our holy God in and of ourselves. And at the same time, we willfully disobey God's word. We go our own way, we sin, and we are condemned because of that. These are the two obstacles before humanity, and Jesus comes and he does away with both of them. First, he comes to fulfill the law. He comes to do what we could not do. He says, for, the law, um, he says, for God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do by sending his own son. The, the law working in us could not make us holy. Why? Because we cannot live up to the standard. We cannot perform it perfectly. We are condemned by it. And so the law just actually shows us that we can't be righteous enough. We can't be good enough. This is called the first use of the law that the Reformers talked about, that the law, first and fundamentally, what does it do? It speaks to us and says, God's standard is perfection, and you cannot live up to it, and so now you stand condemned under it. And it drives us to a need, to a Savior. The law speaks to us and shows us we cannot live as God declares us to live. And it drives us to look for a Savior, drives us to a need to know that we need a Savior. And fundamentally, this offends. Humans who hear this, people who hear this, naturally are offended. Say, I'm good enough, aren't I? I can be good enough. I think people think this because we think God grazes on a curve. We really think in this idea that, well, I'm not Hitler. <laughs> Come on. I've done some stuff, but I haven't done that stuff. I sh when I was in college, one of the hardest classes I took was second, the second um, half of organic chem. And the first test, I was like, oh, no. When he opened it up and I thought it was going to be multiple choices, and, oh, no, you have to draw out reactions. Whoa. Thank you for that curve. Because otherwise, whoo, I don't know if you, you know what gravity on the curve means, right? Everyone bombs the test. And so the, the professor's like, oh my goodness, we got to lower the standard and then get people to pass. I was thankful for that in college. But God does not grade on a curve. His standard is perfection. His standard is righteousness. His standard is holiness like he is holy. And we don't measure up. And so we are naturally offended and wondering why he doesn't grade on that curve as the law speaks to us and condemns us. But he provides the answer when he sends his son to do what the law could not do. That when his son came as one of us and lived that righteous life that we could not live, who did everything facing God and for God to please God, and he did it perfectly, things we could not do, he provides the fulfillment of the law. We see this again and again through Scripture. Even Jesus himself, when he's talking about how, why he came, in John 6, he talks about 
In Matthew 5, he talks about, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, but I have, come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That Jesus fulfills the law. He completes it. He does it perfectly for us because we can never do it to the standard God requires. But Jesus comes and he does it perfectly in his obedience. In his act of obedience, as he does everything required of the law perfectly to the T, dotting every I, doing it with the right heart to serve God and make him known, in his passive obedience, as he's led to the cross to die for us. That Jesus does it all for us. The law is fulfilled. He takes care of it. Not only that is the law fulfilled, but sin is condemned. For the incarnation directly points to the cross. For Jesus had to come in the flesh as one of, not only to live for us, but now he goes to the cross and he dies for us. The death that we all deserve, the death that all sinners deserve, he stands condemned in our place, taking the wrath of God, the punishment of sin, upon himself and taking care of nothing left from God's wrath or for justice to be exacted upon a sinner who puts his faith in Jesus Christ because it was all poured out on him as he hung on the cross. Sin was condemned. As he says, as Paul says in Romans 8, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Sin was condemned in the flesh of Jesus Christ as he took the punishment upon himself. All that is required for salvation is accomplished in Christ. The law fulfilled, sin condemned, and not only that, Jesus' righteousness given to us. We see that in Paul in Romans 8. He says, uh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to flesh, but according to the Spirit. That the righteous requirement of the law is now fulfilled because Christ gives us his righteousness. He gives us his right standing before God. That because in this great exchange, when he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness, now we can stand before our holy God as one of God's own kids. Where he sees us with the love that he, and they're removed by Jesus Christ living the perfect life and dying the death that we deserve. This is what we remember during Christmas. That Jesus provides our pardon. He gives us what we need. And because of that, we can go back to verse 1, which is one of my favorite verses in the whole entirety of the Bible, when it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus provides our pardon, because Jesus has ushered us into the throne room, there's now no more condemnation. That you, as you go through life and you're feeling guilt and you are ripped up in shame for how you've lived because we don't live perfectly and we wander astray and we feel condemnation and we wonder if God is frowning upon us. We wonder if God is actually punishing us with what we're going through. We go back to this verse in the gospel. There's no more condemnation for us. 
Because God has nothing for us but his love. Everything else, wrath, judgment, has been poured upon Christ. And so when we stand in Christ, there's nothing left for us but his love. That he loves us immensely. He's proven it by sending his son. There's now no more condemnation. When the enemy creeps in and whispers in you, you go back to the gospel and say, that's impossible. It's impossible. For if you say that God is mad at me, you're calling God a liar. If you say that God is mad at you, you're saying the gospel is not true. It's true. Everything has been poured upon Christ. He has accomplished everything we need for salvation. And now there's no more condemnation left for us. There's nothing but love. And we rejoice in that. That we know this is true. That we're saved through Christ. You know, we were singing some songs and they alluded to the different ways in which God speaks about what he does for our sin. This is a great book that I recommend to everyone by Sam Storms, a dozen things that God does with our sins and three, three, three things that he doesn't. But he listens to a dozen ways in which God deals with our sin, including, you know, as far as the east is from the west, he separates from us. They're gone. He throws them into an ocean without bottom or shore. They're gone. He trods them under his foot. They're gone. And he does all this through Jesus Christ. He does all this for us who went to his death on the cross for us, who rose again for us, who now has ascended and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty in heaven and intercedes moment by moment, day by day for us, who will one day come again to bring all things to their conclusion, come again to wipe away all tears, to wrong, to right all wrongs, to bring everything to a glorious conclusion and completion. And we will be part of that. This is what we remember, this is what we hope in when we think about the incarnation. For Christmas is remembering that, it's hard to call it a start because it's been moving since the very beginning, but that kind of first part of the last act of Jesus coming in to save us. Because Jesus provides our pardon and we hope in that. So hope in Jesus' provided pardon. What does this mean? I would urge you that during this season, when we can get all hectic, when we have plans, maybe we're traveling, maybe there's so many things we have to be doing, and we quiet ourselves and we reflect on the great and glorious truth that why do we celebrate? Because God loved us so much that he sent his son to us while we're still sinners. Why do we celebrate? Because when we look upon those great stories about that babe that's in the, the manger, we remember this is God, the Almighty in the flesh, born for us. And what that leads to, and we remember that. So take some time this season and remember and focus on Christ, the Son, 
born for us. That can take many different ways in which we do it. My, my family, we choose to do an Advent kind of reading and kind of a movement towards this, the, uh, Christmas so that we can daily take a reminder of what we're celebrating. Now, my kids like it because this Advent calendar has candy on it, and so they want the candy. But they have to read the verse before they get the candy. And this is a great way in which we remember and we celebrate and we refocus our minds on why we celebrate this season, that we hope in Christ and what he brings for us. So take some time and do that, but ultimately, it points us back in Christ. So if you're a believer, say, yeah, I've heard that before, you need to hear it again. Because every day, day by day, we need to read chapter 8, verse 1 again to ourselves, that in Christ, there is no more condemnation for us. That in Christ, he has done it all. We remind ourselves, and if you're not a believer, if that's not true for you, I urge you to look again upon who Christ is. To ask someone to help you walk through his life and what he's done for us. To open the Bible for yourself and start reading Pick up one of the Gospels and read and how Christ lived for us and then died for us. And be convicted of the truth and honor God with your life. Because we remember and we hope this Christmas season because Jesus provides our pardon and we hope in him. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. That we can read it, we can understand it, we can grow in it. That we can see the truth of how you have worked throughout history. We can see the truth about how you love us through sending your son and what that accomplished for us. That through sending your son, the law was fulfilled. And we can trust in that and we can have security in that. So Lord, I pray for all of us during this season as we do all the great things that come with this season. That we can spend some time focusing on you and how you love us and how you've saved us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Would you guys feel free to stand with us one more time and sing with us? <laughs>